Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You are listening to the Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Chocolate to savour. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Hope you're all doing well, wherever you are in the Costa del Clare or in Mayo, which is apparently the new Marbella, or at home, still working from home, or just trying to keep body and soul together, which we've all been doing and we're still doing. Anyway, whatever you're up to, we wish you well here on the Women's Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking to Susanna Dickey, the author of a stunning debut, Tennis Lessons, which is set in Northern Ireland and follows a young woman as she struggles to find her place in the world. She's someone who struggles to conceive of herself in any kind of objective way. You know, her self-perception is so contingent on her encounters and her experiences and how others receive her. You know, even you see from her kind of early adolescence, she has this self-alienation, you know, this kind of body dysmorphia and all these expectations for what she thinks she needs to be and what she wants to be, and then having to reconcile herself with what she actually is. Before that, I wanted to take a moment to really sincerely thank you all for listening, especially over the last few months. We've seen our audience grow and our subscribers increase. And if you don't subscribe yet, please do it. It only takes a minute. And one really lovely thing that emerged for us from lockdown were our big nights in that we have been running over Zoom in association with our sponsor Green and Blacks. My co-producer Suzanne Brennan and I have had such a laugh and it has been a wonderful distraction every second Saturday night since April to see all your lovely faces, hundreds of you, on Zoom as I've chatted to guests including Amy Huberman, Deirdre O'Kane, Owen Fuere, Lisa Hannigan, Lynn Ruan and Marion Keyes. This Saturday we have our last big night in of the current season but don't worry There's been such a demand that we're definitely going to bring it back perhaps in a couple of months in the autumn. And our last guest on Saturday is going to be Emma Donoghue, the Booker-nominated author of books like Room, Wonder, Slammerkin and of course her latest novel, set coincidentally in the pandemic in Dublin 100 years ago. It's called The Pull of the Stars and Emma is going to be joining us from Canada on Saturday at 7pm and we really hope as many of you can join us as possible. And to find out more and to get tickets, follow us on Instagram at IT Women's Podcast and tell us you'd like to be there and maybe why you want to join us. But we hope loads of you will be there. We'll go out with a bit of a bang. And like I said, we will come back. It's been absolutely brilliant. And we just want to thank you all for your support. Now, Tennis Lessons is the debut novel from a bright talent, Susanna Dickey. She has written acclaimed 
prize-winning poetry in the past, but this is her first novel. And in keeping with some really excellent books by Northern Irish writers such as Milkman and Big Girl, Small Town, it's fresh, original and unforgettable. The Derry Girl spoke to me about writing, about bodily functions and about the reality of being a young woman in the 21st century. She spoke to me by Zoom from Belfast and I started by asking her the inspiration for the story. I mean, the idea stemmed from her, really. It's a novel that will probably be disliked by many for its um, fierce plotlessness. <laughs> and I think that's because, you know, it was her. She was what drew me. She was what had my attention. And, you know, she's she's nameless, you know, for, this, for the same reason that we never find out explicitly what she looks like, um, because... She's someone who struggles to conceive of herself in any kind of objective way. You know, her self-perception is so contingent on her encounters and her experiences and how others receive her. And, um, you know, even you see from her kind of early adolescence, she has this self-alienation, you know, this kind of body dysmorphia and all these expectations for what she thinks she needs to be and what she wants to be and then having to reconcile herself with what she actually is and 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 how she has to move through the world as a person and kind of once I'd started writing her I was completely addicted because you know um she allowed me this real means of of pursuing the the logical conclusions of all my worst thoughts (laughs) you know she She's such an idiosyncratic and and kind of poisonous thinker, most um, acutely towards herself. And there was almost like a catharsis in writing, in writing this woman who who is just so cruel to herself and occasionally to others, but it's most acutely directed inwards. But I think that's what, I mean, I can only speak from my own experience reading it, but I think that's what drew me to it a lot. And maybe as it says a lot about me, I could kind of relate to a lot of that. And I do think, though, that a lot of women go around with a poisonous voice in their head, telling them things about themselves that are not objectively maybe true, but that feel very real for them, but that anyone else from the outside looking in isn't going to necessarily agree with. So I think that that voice and that relentlessness, it's just was so gripping and so, um, yeah, relatable for me. Yeah, even writing it, there was this kind of propulsive quality to it because we get so little of a look at the kind of world around her, you know, because I'm someone who so rarely engages with the world around me. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I used to, used to when I was a teenager, I used to drive to my friend's house and I would realise when I got there that I could not remember a moment of the journey, which is, you know, a bit disconcerting when you're behind the wheel of a car and it's because I just I just spent the entire drive just just following these tangential and lateral lines of thought and it's like me it look around you <laughs> there's a couple of things that have been said about the book already and one thing uh is about that there's a lot of sex in it right that's I would say comes under the category of bad sex which again, a lot of women would know an awful lot about and maybe don't talk about as much as kind of, you know, when you look at something like Sex in the City and there was all that amazing talk about how it's great sex and all that kind of thing. But I think for a lot of young women, particularly when they're kind of starting to be sexually active, a lot of those encounters are just horrific and things that you almost 
you just want to never think about again and or share with anyone because you kind of think I'm the only one having these terrible experiences. But the woman in this book, you know, there's one guy who huffs like a badger on her, <laughs> which I, I love that description. Um, and then it goes from that kind of just bad sex to, um, you know, really horrific extreme. There's a rape in the book. Um, but again, and again, I can only speak for myself as a reader. Like I I just found the way you, you handled all of that was was really brilliant because it wasn't over dramatic or it wasn't dramatized and it was made very normal in when I say that I don't like to normalize any of those things but for a lot of women those things are very normal I was that that was obviously deliberate on your part yeah I think I was just kind of because you know I think it's um John Gardner said to Joyce Carol Oates once um could you not write a book in which nice things happen for once um, and I think maybe I have the same problem but when I was writing these, I wasn't, you know, viewing them as these big um, dramatic catastrophes. It's, and I think, you know, there's this kind of ubiquity of just dissatisfaction among young women. And maybe that comes from you over narrativize what you think sex and romance and what adult life is going to be. You have this image in your head that then doesn't come to fruition. And, and so much of that is to do with a lack of, of self-acceptance you know um there can be a propensity to view things as having been so disastrous because you're so uncomfortable with yourself and you then project that onto what has happened and I, yeah I just wanted to kind of because she's such a deeply introspective character that that takes precedence over over anything that's actually happening you know these these sexual encounters could be maybe perfectly pleasant if she wasn't so adamant about, well, with the exception, obviously, of, of the rape, um, if she wasn't so insistent on over-intellectualizing them and, and wondering, what am I doing wrong? What should I be doing here? How could this be better? It's that that just makes them all so ooh, <laughs> dolorous. <laughs> yeah, that's a good word, dolorous. I, don't, I haven't heard that in a while. The other thing uh, that you do very well is describe the sort of just general bodily functions and bodily sort of biology of women. And I know there was a, a very a disgruntled reviewer on the Internet who said there's far too much description of the menstrual um, sort of process in the book. So defend yourself. There's a great scene where she's sort of playing with a blood clot in her pants and she's toying around with it. She's splitting it in two. Um, and again, I think that's something many girls and young women have done, but you just never read about it in a book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I loved, I loved that criticism of it because um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if, if the reviewer actually knew this, but um, menstruation actually happens more often than, than you might think. Um, I'm not entirely sure exactly how often, but it, it means for me, it, it certainly seems quite it's regular. With the moon cycle, I think, something like that way. Yeah. 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 You 30 have, days? Like, <laughs> if you have enough goat hair in your fridge, um, it's <laughs> all dictated by the, the whims of the world. Um, yeah. I mean, so comparatively, you know, we're covering 25 years of a life here. And I'd say I didn't even touch on the majority of the times that she gets her period. I was I I viewed it as very restrained. Yeah, I know that uh, you've watched May I Destroy You, oh, and yeah. there's there's also a sort of period sex in in that again yeah. something that happens all the time but isn't depicted a lot. Yeah, I I I thought that scene was incredible because you know um, 
Arabella in the show also has a blood clot and and the guy she's with picks it up and, and plays with it and says, oh, it's it's so soft. And I really feel like 2020 is going to be an important year for clot discourse. We really haven't talked enough about clots. They deserve a place in the sun. I mean, when your character is looking at it, there is a sort of awe at the beauty of, of it and the kind of, you know, the, just the makeup of it. It's such a, they're such strange things. And, you know, and they, they're glossy and they're shiny and, you know. They just kind of, they have this vitality and vibrancy to them. And, and, and one comes out of you and you think, oh, oh no, should I have kept that? <laughs> what if I need that later? <laughs> Brilliant. Now, talking about the kind of not making things over dramatic, I mean, lots of things happen to this young woman that, again, you know, are things that people deal with. The parents have a bad marriage and she's observing that. Her uncle kills himself and he he has HIV. Um, and then she's raped as well. I didn't read the book as in the rape kind of is sort of the... I mean, obviously the rape is in a way the worst thing that happens to her. But for me, she's someone who, from an early age, just felt like she didn't fit in, that she was sort of wrong. The word wrong comes up a lot. And her almost her life is sort of this waiting for the day when she won't be wrong. You know, when, when the things in her head of the life she should be having finally kind of come true. And there's some lovely lines about that. But I suppose I just wanted to ask you about that. Was, was that deliberate too? Because rape is obviously a hugely um, traumatising thing to happen to anyone. But it seems to me that um, even without the rape, this young woman would have been struggling or do you see that the rape was kind of something that sort of arrested her development even further and meant, meant it was would take longer for her to get to a place where she could start actually living with some kind of ease in her life yeah because I was really keen to to not write a book about a rape you know it's it's about a woman's life and and this woman is is raped and it's horrendous but it's not the the source of of all her discomfort. It's not the primary cause for her self alienation. That precedes that, and then this horrific thing happens to her, and that obviously you know postpones and 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 delays her capacity to to reach any kind of plateau of of self acceptance. But all the the alienation was there prior to then, you know. Um, it's, it's really interesting. Um, a few years ago, I went to a talk by a writer called Winnie M. Lee, who wrote a book called Dark Chapter, which is a kind of novelization of, of her sexual assault. And um, someone asked her in the Q&A afterwards, this really stupid question. It wasn't even a question. It was like, you know, this is more of a comment. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which, you know, we, we love to see. Um, <laughs> and he said you know, you seem, you seem so, so confident and, and happy in spite of this having happened to you. And she said, well, you know, these things happen to women all the time. Um, we couldn't just stop. What, what would you, what do you want us to do? We, we have to keep living. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the book primarily for me is, is about that. It's about her learning to live with herself in, in light of this having happened to her and and just just learning to to be as a person. And now we haven't mentioned what I think, because this isn't like um I was wondering whether someone like Lenny Abrahamson would come in and make a TV of this, but there's no huge love story like the one in Normal People Say, for example. But there is really a big love story because it's a beautiful love story between this unnamed girl and her best friend Rachel, 
which goes on from early schoolhood right up to her adult life. And it's just a beautiful friendship um, between two people who just really get each other, who are very smart, who are funny, who, who despite everything, stick together, who never sort of lose each other. And that's a constant throughout all these things that happen to, to the young sort of protagonist in the book. Um, I just loved that friendship. And I, I would just love to hear you talk about that because... I mean, I, I'm just wondering, do you have friendships like that in your life? Because I felt like I wanted to hang out with them. They're so their banter is so top quality. Like I am, I'm very lucky to have those kinds of people in my life. Although, you know, maybe right now they are slowly in the process of extricating themselves. <laughs> I'll go to text them after this and I'll realize they've blocked me on all forms of communication. Um, yeah, it's, I, I loved writing that ship because, I mean, as, as I said, you know, she's she's so cruel towards herself. And then Rachel acts as a as a cleanse to that, you know, um, and I felt that was almost why I was much less interested in devoting too much time to the kind of cameo appearances from from men throughout the book, because you know, they almost felt like an unwelcome distraction from from the real dynamic, which was between her and Rachel. And, you know, in the early years, there's obviously a slight um, friction there and the occasional disconnect because they are on different, you know, um, trajectories of maturity. And I think Rachel maybe matures a little faster than her and, and falls in with, with this more alpha, you know, character. And, and that causes friction but then they re-find each other and they end up on the same path and I mean I'm not going to cry <laughs> but <laughs> I'm I was really really just attached to that and I'm very lucky to have several of those kinds of friendships in my life and they really those kind of people who act as as ballasts and, and stop you from spiraling or or drifting away on a, on a cloud of just self-indulgent negativity those people who who you know keep you seen and and stabilized yeah it's such a beautiful testament to that I was actually writing something recently about um my relationship and I quoted a Juliet Turner song and she talks about people who buy you back when you get sold it sort of reminds me of that it's such a nice way of putting it but that you know you might drift off and you might go to your craziest self but the, the the people who can kind of reach into you and see who you really are and bring you back to that, you know, place where things are better. Uh, so it's it's really, really well done. And I mean, even that bit where there is a disconnect is very real, too, because the girl, the, the protagonist in the book is bullied very badly by by one person. And Rachel at the time doesn't do enough um, to kind of stick up for her, which again often happens because she's she's weighing up what's the best thing for her to do. And yeah. and yet, you know, their friendship endures and it, it never has to kind of, you know, it's sort of unspoken, but it, it continues anyway. So so I love I love that friendship. And um, the other thing I'd love to talk to you about is the fact that you obviously with your lovely accent are from the north. Are you originally from Belfast or? Yeah, I'm from Derry. You're from Derry. OK, so. Yeah. But that the Northern Ireland aspect of this book is not huge. Recently, there's been some brilliant books I, I I don't know what either I was trying to think about this is are they putting something in the water or has enough time elapsed that you guys are now you know you, the younger generation coming up don't have the baggage and can now just write <laughs> you know without having to see it always through a prism of of the troubles or whatever else 
But there's been some great books like uh, the one Big Town, Small Girl and then obviously Milkman is so, so great. But your book particularly doesn't seem to come through the Northern Ireland lens. And I'd just like to ask you about that, whether that was important. Um, it was. I mean, in its kind of initial iterations, I was I was so reticent to even make it apparent at all that it was was set in Northern Ireland because I had these ideas that you hear Northern Ireland novel, it's it's synonymous with something for people. People will expect something that I felt I wasn't qualified to, to deliver. Um, that didn't interest um, you, I imagine, actually. Yeah. Um, and then I thought, you know, well, why why the hell can't I write a novel set, set in Derry? Um, and obviously, you know, the places aren't named. But then I realised as, as I was writing it that, you know, some of the underlying kind of concerns are very tied up with it being set in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, there's there's the, the conversation about abortion and um, there are these occasional recurring references to, to Rachel's Catholic and, and the protagonist is Protestant. And there are these very occasional fleeting references to that. And and so obviously maybe the, the most glaring Northern Irishness of it has kind of faded into just more low-key quotidian concerns but it it couldn't have been set anywhere else for me because you know I mean my friends and I growing up we we were always you know we had we had a disproportionate fear of getting pregnant um we were terrified of getting pregnant because we didn't have options for if we did it was this just ogre you know um to the point where one of us would, would not even have had sex but we'd be worried about it you know a, a slightly late period we'd say oh oh oh, oh no am, am I pregnant and it's well I should think not unless you know we're having an immaculate conception sort of thing which was also a fear because <laughs> you never know <laughs> um so yeah so it was it was interesting for me writing the Northern Ireland that, that I grew up with, but I I did wonder if if people, you know, felt it would be inauthentic or not sufficiently um, explicitly political enough. Well, I can only say I found it quite refreshing because I think it just says um, it sort of speaks to the fact that. These things are very universal and they happen to be happening in a place. OK, it's Derry or wherever, but that's really not relevant to kind of what's going on. Do you know, I don't think she's thinking about uh, what is ever, whatever is happening politically in the world because no. she's only in her internal world. So it would be weird if you shoehorned in a bit of uh, Martin McGuinness or whatever else is <laughs> going on I think it would be very strange so I don't think I think it works but I I suppose I'm just interested in the fact that these books are allowed to exist now in a way that they weren't you know even 10-15 years ago yeah um and you know a book like Milkman is is so explicitly bound up with that but the way she handles it is is so interesting because again it's this incredibly introspective character and it, and it's so much from from her mind looking outwards that that the world beyond her almost doesn't exist beyond how she 
you know, metabolizes it and, and, and expresses it to a reader. And I think that was just such an important book for, for it's so much more about, about her than it is about where she is. You know, obviously the things that happen to her, to her are as the result of, of her location, but it, it's her as a character that we're there for. Exactly. Um, I think it's, it's the emotional journey, isn't it? And it's the human journey as opposed to the events and the happenings. And it's, it's those responses. Did you find that Anna Burns and that book, I mean, I, I suppose I hesitate to use the word, but did you find it inspirational? Was it something that you read and felt like, OK, this is great that these different types of books are coming out of Northern Ireland? I think especially, you know, for the more experimental nature of it, I find it a hugely influential and important book. I mean, I had written um, several drafts of tennis lessons prior to reading Milkman, but it it felt very, you know, important to me that that that, that book existed. Um, and and you know, slightly weird because you know, apparently we both have a um, slight slight preoccupation with dead cats. <laughs> yes. Which was bizarre to me, you know. I want to say, Anna, let's let's get together and, and talk about dead cats. <laughs> it's a Nordy thing, obviously. <laughs> clearly, clearly. <laughs> and you know, an, another. I mean, this is this is less related to the to the Irish thing, but another book that was hugely important to me was was N.W. by Zadie Smith, and you know, it's it's a book that plays so much with narrative, and there's this whole um, kind of truncated buildings Roman about three quarters of the way through it where you follow one character Natalie over the course of her entire life and and she's born Keisha and then she changes her name to conform to these expectations of, of how a black woman needs to be in order to succeed and she's written this whole new life for herself and then she has this moment and, and Zadie Smith is just so genius in how she leads her readers to, to, to ideas um, she hints at this idea of kind of Kierkegaard's moment, which for Kierkegaard was where a man has this this kind of epiphany moment where they where they become one with godliness. They they this moment of of um, religious realization, and and Beatty Smith plays with that massively. So Atlee's moment is when she has an orgasm on a tree, looking at a cherry blossom, and from that she then unwrites this narrative that she's made for herself and becomes her more kind of true self exploring her sexual proclivities and it's a book that deals so much with with the external versus the internal and and you know writing yourself and that book for me was just so important in in this character that I wanted to write and you have an orgasm on a train (laughs) is that a little tribute (laughs) that that moment I was like you know best moment in modern literature so you stuck one into your own uh, on <laughs> exactly. your own book as well you are listening to the women's podcast brought to you by green and black's organic chocolate discover a different kind of dark listen tell me a bit about yourself because i did mention the poetry cloak that you also wear i think you're still allowed to wear it but you grew up in Derry, um and obviously in recent years we all watch Derry girls and love it so much um and i think you're probably, um, how old are you now, late 20s kind of age? Yeah, I'm 27. So for you watching Dairy Girls, is there a sort of, a, a, is there obviously very relatable things? Did you enjoy it as a piece of art? Yeah, yeah, I did. It's, it's funny, you know, the episode in which the Dairy Girls 
meet the Protestants where they have that almost <laughs> summit between the two schools. Yeah. Uh, the school from which the, the Protestant boys come from is the school that the school I went to is based no. on. Oh my yeah. God. Do you keep your toaster in a cupboard? Not even. That's one of the things Lisa McGee says that, well, I, well, my, I'm, I go, my boyfriend is a prod from Portadown and I go up to his mum's house in Portadown and the toaster is in a cupboard. And I never realised it was a Protestant thing until I went there. Yeah, I questioned, I questioned my mum about this, but then my mum's from Ballymena and, and said, <laughs> oh, that's maybe, a whole different, whole, whole different subspecies of, of Protestants. <laughs> that's, oh God, we'd have another podcast about that. So that what seems like quite a posh school and the Protestants are richer and there's a class thing there in, in that particular episode. So what was your upbringing like? Um, well, I was I was lucky in that, you know, by the time I came around, the school was was integrated um, for men and women. And also uh, there were Catholics in attendance. Um, so I didn't have to kind of go through an education system that felt very um, sheltered and, and binary. Um, and it was, I thought it was a great place to grow up. Again, I, I was very lucky because, you know, um, I have this, you know, great community of friends and and I had a very supportive family. And, um, you know, I, I was four when the Good Friday Agreement was, was signed. I have really no cognizance of, of, of much of that at all. And, you know, I hesitate to throw around words like idyllic, but I had a very nice time in Derry. Um, I think very, very fondly of it. And, you know, there are these moments where we have this real propensity to be very kind of flippant about things. So, you know, occasionally we would get shuttled home early from school because of a bomb scare. Um, but, you know, we were teenagers. We were idiots about it. We thought it was a great laugh. <laughs> and so, yeah, a, a lot of the... And, you know, you see the kind of residual aftershock horrors still making themselves apparent, um, even now in, in Derry. It, it's, I mean, Lyra McKee was murdered last year, um, so it's by no means over. It's still happening. People are suffering and it's, and it's disgusting. But I was very fortunate in that nothing explicit encroached on, on my life and the same goes for my friends and we were very very blessed in that respect yeah and now you're in um Belfast is that right yeah and you're studying in Queens yes I'm doing my PhD at Queens and what's the PhD in I presume writing yes yeah so I'm, I'm writing a collection of poetry about uh, the Isdal woman um who was a woman whose body was found in Norway in 1970 um, and it was the way her body was arranged was really odd. All the, all the tags were cut off her clothing and there were no identifying markers. They find these suitcases full of wigs and, and passports in a train station and no one has identified her yet. She, she remains unclaimed, unidentified. Um, but there's a lot to suggest she may have been a Cold War spy. Um, so I thought, who, who better than, than me, um, the most boring woman? from Derry uh, to write about a Cold War spy. I'm qualified. <laughs> I know the fast-paced world of espionage. <laughs> that sounds absolutely fascinating. I'm immediately going to go and Google that after I, I, I get off this Zoom call. Uh, but tell me about writing then from an earlier age, when you first 
Do you have a memory of putting words together and, and feeling like that was what you wanted to do? Or did it did it take a while? Oh, it took an incredibly long time. I didn't even have remote tentative aspirations until my early 20s. Um, I mean, I've always been a very voracious reader, but writing didn't seem like something that was an, an option to me. Um, not even that I considered it and then rejected it out of hand. It just didn't encroach on, on what seemed possible for my life. And then um, I was at Queen's uh, studying English literature and there was a mandatory creative writing module. And I wrote some really, truly terrible sonnets about loneliness, um, which right there and then I should have either been put in a volcano or spayed. Um, but neither happened. So they encouraged me, which I'm sure they regret now. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I really, I really took to it. Um, I thought this is this is lovely. It's so lovely to just channel my thoughts into something that feels um worthwhile and and the way that that writing takes you out of time the way that you can explore these thoughts and and these these characters and and these dynamics it it I mean it's I'm never more content than when I'm doing it but yeah I was again and it was completely by chance if if Queens hadn't made me those terrible poems about loneliness (laughs) and you've you've actually won a you've won a prize for your poetry uh what's what was that collection called uh, bloodthirsty for marriage <laughs> okay uh, are you bloodthirsty for marriage Susanna sorry uh no no I'm not well I'm it's, I think it's very important that we put out um, on the public record that I'm not <laughs> okay um but they were I mean to, to get that acclaim and to get a prize for your poetry must have been very encouraging yeah it was it was really really lovely um I'd been writing poetry for a while, but that that one did something slightly different in that prior to then, I would always, you know, take these other narratives and use them as a means to kind of um, explore my own feelings, but in a way that was always quite pared back and, and I would have these degrees of removal. And then I wrote this collection, which still does that to an extent, but it was my most kind of explicitly revelatory about about how I, you know, think and, and feel. And it was it was really lovely to get that, you know, source of encouragement for it to 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 be made to feel that, you know, this was something that on some level someone had had not even seen merit in it. But you know, I guess writing is always kind of about collusion, about about someone reading it and feeling like the writer is colluding with them in some respect in in a way that other people might not necessarily get. It achieves that kind of moment of, of intimacy um and it was really nice to, to think that that some people might have experienced that with something I'd written well I definitely re- experienced that with tennis lessons actually um definitely so you got a two book deal there's a bit of a gun to your head I hope you're writing it can you tell us anything about it is it very different to tennis lessons um you know it, I don't think it'll be you know I I I'm trying not to stagnate, so I'm going to try and inject a bit of variety. But um, you know, I've I've chosen my my preferred themes, and I'm not going to go out there and find new themes. You know, I've got my I've got my six themes, and they're my themes, and I'll die for my themes. Um, so you know, it'll explore some of the same things. Um, it's going to be very differently written in that there are going to be two protagonists 
and it'll be split down the middle and you'll get this first person insight into each. Um, but it'll explore kind of some of the similar ideas like, um, you know, obsession and, and desire and, and the female body. Um, but there will also be some actual stuff about tennis if, if they let me sneak that in. Um, Do you like tennis? I think I owe it to the world to actually write something about tennis. <laughs> well, you do write a little bit about tennis at the end of this book. And also, I, I did notice that when we went, mentioned the lovely friendship between Rachel and the protagonist in the book, um, there's a mo- lovely moment where Rachel's boyfriend is watching them banter and he describes it like being, you know, a tennis ball going from one to the other. So you got that yeah. in as well. Because all the way through, yeah. I was wondering, why is it called Tennis Lessons? I guess, you know, it's it's all kind of about, uh, you know, self-perception. You know, she's this character is trying to reconcile um, what she'd like to be with who she is. And so, so much of the novel is a kind of back and forth, you know, um, whether it's, you know, expectations being quashed by reality, whether it's that dialogue with, with her and Rachel, with, with Rachel having to constantly uh, bat back these, these negative thoughts that the character is having. Um, and then, you know, I'm not going to give away the, the, the closing moments too much, but the, the tennis um, to me felt like a quite important metaphor for how this girl's life is going to be in, in, in terms of her propensity to, to over-negativize and over-idealize and then what life will actually be. You mentioned that your new book is in the first person. I have to tell you, when I heard before I sat down to read this book, when I heard it was in the second person, I was very, very vehemently like, oh, God, I'm going to have to read a book in the second person. I hate this person (laughs) writing. And I have to hand it to you. I don't know why. I don't know why. But I, I really can't stand that tense in a novel. And I don't know why I absolutely very quickly said, okay, this is fine. This is how it should be written. And it didn't annoy me. I mean, I think that's a major achievement. (laughs) I mean, I would consider that a major achievement because I know that it really, really irritates people. And I don't know why I thought, you know what, I'm going to make things really easy for myself by writing my first book in the tense that pretty much everyone hates. (laughs) Yeah, it's sort of your, your it's, I think that's a bit of your perversity. And I mean that in a good way. <laughs> but you did. Now, I have to talk to you about one more bit in it as well. Well, two more bits, actually. There's an amazing part where our our unnamed protagonist is on the plane back from London, I think. And there's a woman beside her talking about Halloween. And you know when you're on a plane and somebody's talking to you and you don't want anyone to talk to you, but they won't shut up and they're just really annoying. And she's talking about Halloween and she's talking about all the things that happen in terms of all the sweets that you get. And then sometimes they don't get eaten and sometimes they do. And sometimes the older kids come later and you're afraid of them because they, what they might do outside. Anyway, it's a brilliant bit of um, prose. But in it, you also she talks about how nobody ever wants the chomps. And she's always left for for days with all these chomps that she has to eat. And she's trying to be on um, Weight Watchers and, you know, it's a disaster. Anyway, it's it's very funny. But what have you got against chomps? Chomps are perfectly fine chocolate bars. I'm suspicious of chomps because, you know, you get your you get your hero's selection box. And the curly whirly is like the stretch Armstrong of chocolates. It's it's the it's the chocolate bar you eat when you're feeling really tenacious, when you want a punishing um experience but a sense of accomplishment at the end you know then you've got your flick which is like 
the chocolate equivalent of a of a first kiss or or a child's laughter. That's you know you're feeling buoyant and and light and and full of the joys of spring. And then what the hell is a chomp? <laughs> it's 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 not doing anything. <laughs> no. Well, I, I just I, I really like your writing, but I really disagree with your position on chomps. But I mean, I'm not we're not going to fall out over it, I hope. Well, but anyway, it's, it's, it's an absolutely stand up piece of writing, as the whole book is. I also would you mind if I read a bit out of the book? Would that be terrible? Should I get you to read it? Oh, no, please. You do. You'll do it. Would you prefer better. me to read it? Because I like doing my Northern Ireland accent. And I always fancied myself a bit of an actor, but I never get the chance. So this is can you indulge me? This is a conversation that happens in the pub. And you mentioned um, abortion earlier. And this is two sort of these, which are very common in Northern Ireland. When I lived up there, you meet them everywhere. The born again Christian types who are, you know, very extreme and like to talk about their, their religion. But in my experience, often quite hypocritical in their actual real life. Um, not all of them. Hashtag not all born again Christians, but, you know, <laughs> a lot of them. So this is in a pub and I just think it's it's another great piece of writing. So um, but Rachel and her friend are in are, are in this pub and Rachel lets out another laugh. The man looks down at the table, his mouth slightly open. He takes a sharp intake of breath and then slides into the booth beside Rachel. She sidles towards the wall, grimacing at you. You close your eyes again and feel a change in pressure in the cushion as the other man sits next to you. The handsome one rubs his hands together. So are either of you members of the church? No, Rachel coughs pointedly, and you open your eyes. We don't live here anymore. No, I mean any church. Still no? That's too bad. We're doing a series of protests a few weeks from now down south with a whole bunch of congregations. You could still come though. You don't have to be churchgoers to protest evil. You tilt your head to the side. What evil are you protesting? The new abortion law. You feel Rachel's legs stiffen against yours. You speak slowly. Oh, right. He smiles excitedly. Please feel free to join. We need all hands on deck. Rachel's hands have disappeared under the table. Well, you pause. I imagine that will be a lovely day out for everyone. His smile shrinks. Now it's his head that tilts slightly. It's not a day out, exactly. This is important work we're doing. Rachel stays silent, her eyes downcast. You take a larger sip of wine. You try to make your face go thoughtful. I guess you could say that about anything, though, really. Cirque du Soleil or pet therapy. His mouth twists. This isn't a joke, you know. I agree. Pet therapy is a crucial field. I'm not saying I'm judging them. What's to judge? Cats need CBT too. I mean the women. What women? Having abortions. You're not judging them. No, I just think the law needs to change. The law just got changed. It needs to change back. Why is that then? Because it's... He stops, takes a breath, paces himself. It's evil and thoughtless. The act of abortion is evil and thoughtless. That's what I've always heard about abortion, that it's thoughtless. Hey, shall we get a pizza? No, I think I'd sooner have a nice big abortion. Rachel's mouth itches towards a half smile. You wonder at this version of yourself. It occurs to you that this is probably how you behave on dates, loud and performative and secondary school theatre confrontational. The man's frown has not moved. You're not, you're not pro-abortion. You wink at him. You realise as you do that you're not sure you've ever winked before. 
He leans forward. You can't possibly condone the killing of babies. Under the table, Rachel's fingers find yours. You lean forward too. You whisper. I love killing babies. Don't say that. I do. Give me a club, a mallet, a nice big pickaxe. That's just a Saturday afternoon for me. Rachel starts to vibrate on the seat. The man's mouth is downturned, incredulous. You're horrible. You wink again. He shakes his head and gets up and walks away, hunched. The man sitting next to you stays on the bench, silent. He starts to pick at his fingernails. Rachel looks at him for a moment, then back to you. She raises her eyebrows and squeezes your knee. I'm going to pee and then we can go, okay? She gives the man another confused look as she slides out of the booth. You look at your empty wine glass. He clears his throat and turns his wide shoulders towards you. He smiles. I think I'm going to head home soon. Okay. Would you like to come with me? Home with you? Yeah, for some fun. He has a scar at the edge of his hairline, an inch of puckered pink. It looks like half a worm. You look at it for a few moments before speaking. For sex, you mean? He laughs. If you want to be blunt about it. You turn back towards the empty seat opposite you. You pick up your wine glass and hold it to your mouth, even though it's empty. So, you pause. It's kind of a Sunday carvery approach to religion then, huh? What? Nothing. Rachel makes her way across the room. You lift your bag off the floor. The man next to you clears his throat. So what do you think? Rachel stands a foot from the table. She nods towards the door. You start to wriggle out of the booth using your hips to forcibly nudge him along the cushion. When all three of you are standing, you turn to him. I can't have sex tonight, I'm afraid. I have to go and kill some babies. The music has been turned down and the wine has turned your voice up. People standing in clusters look over. Bethany standing by the bar screws up her face. Rachel laughs and gives her a wave before pulling you towards the door. Outside, she puts her head on your shoulder. There is the sound of a gritter in the distance. You wrap your arms around her. Ah, oh, I loved that scene. Um, <laughs> I, uh, sorry, sorry. Thank you for indulging me in my in my little uh, reading there. I mean, you're reading from my book. I'm the one being indulged. <laughs> especially after we had that moment of, of antagonism earlier when we disagreed about the chumps. So I'm glad that we can, we've come back from that. I love the fact we've moved on so quickly from it and, you know, to a really good place. Like it even made us, it made us sort of closer, I think. I think so. You know, I think we've come through the adversity and now we're stronger than ever. And we demonstrated some real maturity and diplomacy. Okay, well, listen, when all this um, socially distant, all this horrible pandemic stuff is over, if you ever have events in Dublin, like I will come free of charge and read bits out of your book for you because I've I've been reading it to my boyfriend this morning and I just love reading it. It's got a, there's an amazing lyricism in, in the way you write, you know, and, and um, the dialogue is so authentic and it feels really real and you know, that's not easy to do. And I, I I mean, maybe it is easy for you to do and that's why you're so good at it. But I, I just, I really want to say that for anyone listening. Like if you like books like that, that that don't feel fake at all, that just feel very authentic and real. And that's what you do on every single page of this book. It's really, really a massive achievement and a brilliant uh, work of art. So well done. Thank you so much. Five stars. Oh, I'll, I'll take those. <laughs> I feel like I've talked too much in the last bit. So is there anything you'd like to say before you go? I mean, are you feeling very hopeful about your career? Obviously, being a writer is very precarious. It's it, There's a lot of insecurity. It's difficult. 
um, there's some rewards, but for so many people, it, you know, they don't get that. How, how do you feel about that kind of the nature of, of being a writer and making that your full time occupation? Well, I mean, I'm I don't I, I'm, I'm not kind of, you know, embarking on this with with any undue expectations. Um, I just I just want to, to have the time and, and to be able to find the time and to be able to be afforded the time to write. I don't expect that I will go through life jobless. I will I'll have to have jobs to facilitate that and 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 I'm you know I'm I am not resentful of that in the slightest because you know it's it there's a lot of precarity in the industry and it's it's tricky and and there isn't a huge amount of, of money for everyone. It's just the 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 writing that I'm excited about and hopefully not being bad at it. <laughs> well, you don't have to worry about that, Bill. I've just said it. I'm not saying it again. I just think it's amazing. One thing I was interested in, though, as well, there's a lot of sex in it, a lot of very, you know, raw stuff in the book. What about your family? Is anybody going, oh, my God, Susanna, why do you have to put all that in your book? Or are they totally fine with it? Um, they've actually, they've been incredibly reasonable about it, um, I guess, because they've known me for, for quite a while, my family. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if I mentioned that. Um, and I've always been sort of drawn to to descriptions of viscera and, and grossness. Um, I've always been a very bodily minded person. Um, so actually, my mum said, having read it, I was I was uh, surprised there wasn't more uh, period content. She said, I, I felt you were very restrained. Well, that says a lot about you, I have to say. And I noticed, I noticed the lovely uh, photo of your publicity shot was taken by your brother James, and it's a really gorgeous picture. So it's great that he got in on the act as well. Yes, well, <laughs> he's just, he's just, he's just holding on to my to my coattails, hoping that you know I will propel him into the stratosphere of of famous books about periods. <laughs> well, I think that's the perfect way to end this lovely conversation, Susanna. Dicky, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you, pleasure to read your book, and I couldn't recommend it more highly. So I'll be watching very closely what the next book and what you do next. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. And that's all we have time for. Thanks so much to my guest, Susanna Dickey. The book is Tennis Lessons. And as you can probably hear in that interview, I can't recommend it highly enough. Remember, if you want to join us on Saturday night at 7pm for our big night in with author Emma Donoghue, just go to Instagram at IT Women's Podcast and tell us you want to be there. You can contact us as always on Twitter or by email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.